Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps the 54% who did not vote for Donald Trump talk to those of us who did about the most divisive issues in our country. This week, we have our very first guest co-host, and it's my good friend Stacey Abrams. Stacey is the former minority leader in the Georgia House, the winner of the 2018 race for Georgia governor, though not the governor due to voter suppression, a New York Times bestselling author, one of the smartest human beings I've ever known. Her latest book, Our Time Is Now, came out in June, and it's really, really good, and you should get it. Uh, I want to really introduce her with two quick stories about my favorite things I've personally heard Stacey Abrams say when I've been in her company. And the first thing is... We, so Stacy and I met doing a fellowship program at the Aspen Institute together several years ago. And one of the first things that happened was everybody had to go around. We were all legislators or statewide officials and say who we're thinking about when we write legislation. And Stacy, everything Stacy says, I feel like it should be etched in stone. She said, I write legislation for people who grew up in my neighborhood but without my parents, which I thought was so awesome. And then fast forward to several years later, uh, I was honored that Stacy asked me to come down and be one of two people to introduce her for her campaign kickoff for governor. So I came down to give this speech or give this introduction to her speech. And right beforehand, we're with this little clutch of like, I guess, her kitchen cabinet uh, sort of top donors and supporters. And one of them asked the inevitable question, how are you going to get Trump voters? And Stacy said, well, I'm probably not. And everybody was like, uh, what are we what are we doing here? And she said, well, look, here's the deal. I got a choice. I can either try and get Catholics to become Baptists, or I can just go out and get Baptists to go to church, which I thought was the coolest way ever to explain that there's a lot of Democrats out there who haven't been voting or, or African-American voters in Georgia who haven't been registered, and I'm going to work with reality. So that's the kind of person Stacey is. She just routinely rips off things, not to too much pressure on her in this podcast, but she routinely rips off things that you're like, that should be like on a pillow or in stone or in a frame <laughs> with like an inspiring picture. Uh, so anyway, Stacy's here. Stacy, how you doing? Well, I'm deeply honored and I'm, you know, you can't tell beneath uh, my melanin, but I'm blushing. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very kind introduction. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I, uh, you know, I mean, I mean it. You're, you know, I think you're one of the smartest people, uh, not just, you know, usually people qualify it. They say like, she's one of the smartest people I've met in politics. She's one of my best friends and no, like, you're just a really good friend and also just literally one of the smartest people uh, I've ever... The stuff I didn't mention in your bio is like multiple uh, romance suspense novels that have been very successful, CEO of a nonprofit, uh, you know, successful in business, all sorts of stuff. You can probably wow. sing. I don't even know. Can you sing? 
I've got a, like a smoky bar voice. I can okay. sing with a guitar and people who've been inebriated for at least 20 minutes. Yeah. See, that counts. They would love me. Yeah. That but I, I have to say that, you know, I appreciate the compliment because I knew I was making a point in our fellowship when Jason Kander nodded in appreciation, but more importantly, when I could riff off of something he said, because, you know, Jason, you're one of the smartest people I've met as well, and your thoughtfulness about issues. And you would bring in, you know, yes, of course, you could talk about the military, but you could also quote, you know, 14th century Chinese philosophers, which, you know, not exactly the norm. I so, was paraphrasing, probably. Yeah, but, but still, <laughs> I was just, look, I, I appreciate the fact that you didn't do it and, you know, can't knees and embarrass all of us. So right, right. thank you. Uh, well, that's very nice of you. <laughs> that fellowship was awesome. I mean, for for legislators or, or anybody out there who, who doesn't know about it, the Riddell Fellowship at the Aspen Institute, um, you can't apply. They kind of find you, but they find 12 Democrats and 12 Republicans every year who they think are going to be the next thing. Uh, my favorite part was they didn't let us talk about politics. They only let us talk about like the reading and anyway, it was a great way to get to know people and Anyway, all right, with that, we should start. We should start. So, <laughs> okay. um, so Stacey, Ravi usually starts us off with the biggest news in the country each week. So, Ravi, what do you have for us? Well, first, I just want to say it's, it's an honor to be Ringo Starr to McCartney and Lennon here or, <laughs> right. or Bosch to Wade and LeBron, whatever your metaphor is here. But uh, for the news of the week, on Monday, a new analysis was released showing that between February and May, an estimated uh, 5.4 million Americans were stripped of their health insurance because of the pandemic. And this increase in the uninsured was nearly 40% higher than the previous historic increase, which occurred during the Great Recession. And in the 37 states that expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, 23% of laid off workers became uninsured. So if you expanded Medicaid, 23% lost their health insurance. But the percentage was nearly double that. So it was 43% in the 13 states that did not expand Medicaid, which includes Texas, Florida, and North Carolina. And in Texas alone, the number of uninsured jumped from 4.2 million to 4.9, leaving three out of every 10 Texan uninsured. So Stacy, your home state of Georgia declined to expand Medicaid and is among the states with the highest rates of uninsured at 23%. You ran stridently on a platform to expand Medicaid. And as the next governor of Georgia, I will never stop fighting for you, for Georgia, because I am running for you. But we have work to do. In too many ways, Republican leaders have failed these folks by being too mean and too cheap to expand Medicaid. By jeopardizing our rural hospitals for political gain, they have put millions of Georgia families at risk, and we can do better than that. And as much as I would like to go back in time and change the the course of that race, uh, we can't. So what should state and federal leaders be doing right now to protect the vulnerable? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that healthcare is a human right, but it's also the basis of economic growth and economic strength. When your workers physically can't do the job, your economy suffers. When your hospitals can't afford to stay open, especially if you live in rural communities, you lose access to new jobs. And in Georgia, we know that we could create 50,000 jobs simply by accepting the billions in federal aid that we've already paid for. I mean, part of the insanity of refusing Medicaid expansion 
is that it's not grounded in science. It's not grounded in math. It's not grounded in logic. It's basically just people being mean. And we know that it's meanness because Mike Pence expanded Medicaid. He is not a socialist. Neither am I. (laughs) But Mike Pence recognized that in a state that had a heavy urban population and a heavy rural population and, wait for it, people who got sick, that the best way to save your hospitals, save your communities and build is to have health care. And Medicaid was a way to do it. And so I just think that these are mean, petty people. You know, somebody didn't give them something for Christmas or, you know, insert holiday here. And particularly here in Georgia, it is the absence of logic. When the Chamber of Commerce and I agree wholeheartedly, then the governor is wrong. First of all, let me just say, Ravi, like I knew Stacey would be the best first guest co-host because like she's the only person in national politics just about like talking about stuff in a way that you could talk about it in your living room. But I'm going to stop my Stacey infomercial for a second <laughs> and just go back to this topic, which is to piggyback on what she was saying about the economic productivity that it creates. You know, we've been having this debate in Missouri for a long time. And now it's at the point where it's we're one of the states where we've managed to get it on the ballot. And they decided the Republicans decided to put it on the August ballot because they know it's really popular now and they they don't want to have to have that fight in November. But more than that, it's not just that it's become really popular. It's that it's popular because people understand exactly what she was just saying, which is there's a direct return on investment for every dollar you put in to healthcare you get a bunch of dollars back in state productivity and economic productivity. So the analogy I always use when I talk to people about this is that every time I hear a Republican politician complain about the amount of money that the state spends on health care, I say it sounds to me just as absurd as if a board of directors for an oil company were sitting around a big table and they were like, what's with all the money we spend on drilling? This is ridiculous. They wouldn't do that because they make money off oil after they drill for it. And we make money as a state off healthcare after we spend money on it. And Stacey, uh, for folks who are, you know, they're not people who follow these policy debates, the ins and outs, may not even know necessarily the role of Medicaid in a place like Georgia, like why, why it really matters. And when you say that the state was turning down money, what does that all mean to folks who, who weren't following the debate about whether to expand Medicaid. So let's go back to the passage of the Affordable Care Act. The whole point was we had a lot of people in the United States, millions of people who could not access health care. President Obama, Vice President Biden decided that they would solve a problem that we have been talking about for 50 years. And so they said, look, look we're going to put this thing in place. We're going to acknowledge that we have a workplace-based health care system So we're going to make certain that people get the policies they need. For people who aren't getting it through work, we're going to have this thing called the exchanges. You can go and buy your health insurance. But they acknowledge that there are some people who don't make enough money to pay for health care themselves. And 50 years ago, President Lyndon B. Johnson realized that, you know, poor people need health care because illness doesn't care whether you have money or not. Poor people get sick. And so he created the Medicaid program. And what that said is that the federal government recognized that your wealth shouldn't determine whether or not you stay sick. But because he wanted to make everyone happy, it was allocated to the states to decide who gets access. So under federal law, Medicaid exists in every single state, and it's a partnership. State puts in some money, the federal government puts in some money, and the poorest people in every state, they get health insurance. So when President Obama and Vice President Biden were thinking about what do we do next, when Speaker Pelosi and then uh, Majority Leader Harry Reid, when they were working on it, they said, okay, We have this program that works. It works for the poorest people in every state. 
We know who they are. We know what they need. We've already got the contract set up. So why not just expand the coverage? Because in some states, if you made $30,000 a year, they said that was poor enough. They're going to let you have access to Medicaid. If you lived in Georgia, you can't make $7,000 a year. If you make $7,000 a year or more, it's actually, I think, closer to $6,500. You're considered too wealthy for Medicaid. You're not poor enough if you make $7,000. And so they said, we think 7,000 is probably not enough. So we're gonna say that in your state, we're gonna boost it up and we're gonna use the federal poverty line and say that if you are at a certain percentage of federal poverty, we're going to make certain you can have health care too. And we're gonna expand on the existing program that every state has that every state uses and that's called Medicaid, wait for it, expansion. So basically it's every single state has the opportunity to just be nicer to poor people, to say we want you to join the ranks of humanity and know that if you get sick, you don't have to wait at home hoping that the cough you have doesn't turn into COVID-19. We're going to let you come see us and check it out early because we know you live in a community where you could spread it around if you're afraid to get checked out. And so that's why Medicaid expansion is so important. And there, are, you know, most of America got it, but in states like Georgia, Texas, Missouri, Florida, close your eyes and think of the states you think might be mean. Those are the ones who refuse to expand <laughs> Medicaid. And so the last part is, as I said, it's a partnership between the federal government and the state government. All of us have paid our taxes every year. FICA takes our money first and part of, you know, so you, you know your money's there. In the states that have refused Medicaid, for the first five years of Medicaid expansion, it was almost 100% paid by the federal government. They said, we're not even going to ask you to put money in. We're going to give you money back and cover everyone. But now that we're in the second period, you have to put in 10%. If you put in 10%, the federal government will put in 90%. And because all of us are taxpayers, the point is that we're getting our money back that we have paid into the system for decades. And the state just has to come up with 10%. You put in a dime, they'll give you 90 cents. And in Georgia, for example, half a million people suddenly get health care. That's what we're arguing about. Yeah, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, Jason, on the no-brainer piece, on the moral part of this, when we're talking to people who don't necessarily share our political ideology, there's sort of a ladder of responsibility of government, right? And it seems like Medicaid should be at the bottom of this ladder. It's kids. A lot of Medicaid is kids, not just kids, but it covers a large percentage of kids in poverty. What would you be saying across to you know, Uncle Sal or whatever we call him at the table to be like, look, let's just start with the children? Well, actually, I did that in uh, in the legislature because it is one of the most effective arguments. I I uh, did an amendment uh, when we were having this fight back in 2009 that took health care uh, away from legislators until they uh, extended it to uh, and so they extended SCHIP and, and Medicaid to to kids. And it was it was one of the only successful amendments to get out of the state house because it put them in a bit of a spot. Um, so I think it's not just politically, but also personally with people you talk to, one of the most effective arguments. The other that I think we should be making a lot more often, and Stacy was was talking about it a minute ago, uh, is you know because a lot of the people who who support the Republican side tend to come from rural areas. Hospitals in rural areas across Georgia and Missouri and other states are closing when Medicaid doesn't expand. And not only is that a pretty big deal because if you have a heart attack and the hospital near you is closed, you're more likely to die. But it's also a big deal if you don't have a heart attack because if you go to you know rural or or really 
you know, semi-rural parts of, of states in the Midwest and the South, what you see is that you'll ask people, what's the biggest employer here? And they will always say the hospital. So when the hospital closes, it can literally kill people and it can kill the economy of the town. And so, Stacey, we've been greeted with news, a little bit of evidence that the Biden campaign is starting to invest in some of the very states that we're talking about, Texas and Georgia. Given that you are our resident Georgia expert, is, is Biden is smart to invest in Georgia? Can he win Georgia? Yes. Would you like me to explain? <laughs> yeah, maybe give us a little more, but I, I'm glad to hear it. What a surprising <laughs> answer. Right, look, I, I had to give it a lot of consideration before I responded. So, so here's the state of play in Georgia. Eighth largest state in the nation, 16 electoral votes. 2016, Hillary Clinton came within five points of beating Donald Trump with nominal investment in the state. 2018, I put a little bit more money in. I closed the gap to 1.4%. And that was despite running against the secretary of state who controlled the election. So you can ask that any way you want. And I did at the beginning. And, thank, of this. and, I, and you did. <laughs> and I greatly appreciate it. So that was 54,723 votes if you're counting. So look forward to 2020. In July, we had the single highest turnout in a primary for Democrats in Georgia history. We have two, not one, but two Senate seats that are up for grabs. Uh, the normal election, plus we have a special election for Kelly, I hate Black Lives Matter slash I made money off of COVID Leffler and David, what am I doing here, Purdue? Uh, so those two people are up for grabs and we can take those seats. We have two competitive congressional seats, Lucy McBath, who took Newt Gingrich's uh, ancestral seat. So we replaced Newt Gingrich with a black woman who has been fighting for gun safety. And we have a chance to also take uh, the 7th Congressional District, which is a suburban district, and we came within 400 votes of winning it in 2018. And we have the opportunity to flip the state house, which means we would control redistricting along with Republicans for the first time uh, in a decade. And we have the chance to allocate 14 congressional districts fairly evenly. So let's put all that into the pot. We also are a state where when I ran and not win by you know, 54,723 votes, since that time, 750,000 people who were not registered or eligible to vote for me have now registered in Georgia. 45% of them are under the age of 30, 49% of them are people of color, and in Georgia and most of the South, race is the strongest predictor of political leanings. The next one in that little bucket is usually age. So Joe Biden can win, and it makes sense that he's investing here because we deliver electoral college votes a Senate majority, we help hold the, the House, and we help prepare for the next decade. Because as much as we are redoing the 2016 election in 2020, we cannot forget, as Jason can tell you, that we're also running the 2010 election. And what hurt Missouri, what hurt Georgia, what hurt North Carolina, what hurt Florida, was the inattention we paid to the 2010 election. And it is a rare occasion that a census occurs at the exact same time as a presidential and that we can really fix the maps, we can fix the future, especially in Georgia, if Biden competes here and we think he'll win. Harumph, I agree. <laughs> well, on to a slightly lighter subject. We have a, Stacey, we have this segment we call Quarantine Corner. And this is just our opportunity to- I'm sorry, is that your lighter subject? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I'll get to the lighter part of it in a second. Okay. It's the lighter answers. Free. We share something in our lives, whether it's a book or a show that we watch or just a personal win uh, or loss uh, in our lives uh, for our audience. And so, Jason, why don't you kick us off? What do you got for us? 
So uh, my role here is usually to do the the dad slash parent, whatever part of it. Uh, and so uh, I will tell everybody that there's a show on Netflix. It's been around for a few years. It's called Troll Hunters. Uh, you should watch this with your kids. If you don't have kids, you should still watch this. It's a Guillermo del Toro series and it's amazing and then it's got like a, a spin-off which was called uh, three below and we just finished troll hunters with true and we all loved it and then we found out that they're making like a third thing that comes out in august so start watching it now and august 7th the third one comes out trust me you will all be tweeting at me thank you for the troll hunters advice it's amazing stacy what do you have for us so i love television it makes me incredibly happy and we did a fundraiser this week for Fair Fight, the work I do on voter protection, which, you know, we're trying to keep up with uh, Jason and Let America Vote, which I also get to play with. Yeah, Stacy's on the, our board of advisors <laughs> and is keeping but, up just fine. Well, thank you. So Fair Fight 2020, we're in 18 states doing voter protection. We've been deeply involved in all of these primaries, learning, but also supporting things. Well, I got to, we did a trivia fundraiser. Uh, and so we had amazing guest celebrities. Deborah Messing was there. We had um, Paul Reiser from Mad About You and LeVar Burton. Oh, cool. <laughs> roots of Reading Rainbow and of Star Trek, of which I am a deep and unabashed aficionado. Best known for his roles in the miniseries Roots and the TV movie Dummy, LeVar Burton finds playing the character of the blind Lieutenant Geordi LaForge in Star Trek, The Next Generation, somewhat of a unique challenge. And he kicked my butt. <laughs> so... I, I am a I am a fan of I appreciate the original, but I'm a huge fan of Next Generation and all of the iterations thereafter. And a lot of the questions were about the original. He killed it. He won. And that is now having had a couple of times where I was competing and did not get the prize. My quarantine corner victory was that I held serve and was not completely crushed by him. I got two answers right. And I'm very proud of myself. When he when he like <laughs> when he nails an answer, is he like, it's in a book. You take a break. No. <laughs> he, the, he was so gracious. He was like, well, you'll get the next one. I'm like, no, I won't. <laughs> Although when he beat me, he said Kunta for the win. Which, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's cooler than the uh, reading rainbow theme. That's pretty good. It really was. <laughs> I'll roll us out with uh, also a TV item. So I alluded in the previous episode to the fact that I had written a, a show pilot. And this week in the potential personal win category, I have two big meetings with two big Hollywood studios, one tomorrow, one Monday about potentially making the show. So it's possible by next week when we come back, I'll have uh, a big milestone here. And then maybe a year from now, we'll be talking about uh, watching that show, but hopefully we'll be out of quarantine. I, I have read the pilot and I hope the show gets made because I want to watch it. Do we have time for me to get a quick synopsis of the show? Yeah, uh, I would love to. Uh, so Stacy, I grew up in Staten Island, New York, in, and partially in this town called Travis, which is in the the shadow of the Fresh Kills landfill, for folks who are listening, it was the largest uh, garbage dump in the world for 50 years, was the sole residential dumping ground for New York City's trash. So I wrote a show that was basically a coming-of-age story of kids in Staten Island in the late 90s as the garbage dump is closing. And so they're kind of the battle between these kids and various forces trying to keep the dump open. So that's the show. I look forward to it. Well, we have another segment, uh, Stacy. we call This Week in Misinformation. Uh, and this is where we bring to the table one meme, article, ad, or talking point from Republicans. And then we dissect it, telling our audience as much as we possibly can about how true it is, uh, and most importantly, how they can counter it. Uh, Jason, what do you have for us this week? So this week, we were greeted by a tweet from the acting president of the United States, Donald Trump, uh, about vote by mail. 
said mail-in ballot fraud. <laughs> Stacy's, uh, I hear you. I felt I, I said it inside. Mail-in ballot <laughs> fraud found in many elections. People are just now seeing how bad, dishonest, and slow it is. Election results could be delayed for months. No more big election night answers. One percent not even counted in 2016. Ridiculous. Just a formula for rigging an election. And then, because he's learned how to thread tweets, which is a really dangerous thing people taught him, absentee ballots are fine because you have to go through a precise process to get your voting privilege. Not so with mail-ins. Anyway, rigged election. 20% fraudulent ballots? Uh, so, <laughs> if... If we don't counter this strategy, uh, it, it could cast a lot of doubt on election results. So, Stacy, what's the most effective way for our listeners to get across to the people in their lives that vote by mail is secure? Vote by mail and absentee ballots are the exact same thing. <laughs> so the occupant of the White House, once again, has mangled information and I would say lie, but lying presumes actual knowledge. And so let's just go with the ignorance that is usually more present. An absentee ballot is a mail-in ballot is an absentee ballot. And therefore, he was telling the truth when he said absentee ballots are safe. Believe him there. Don't believe anything else he says. But that one moment of truth is like the axiom that a broken clock is right twice a day. This was one of those times. We know, number one, all 50 states have the capacity for absentee ballots slash mail-in ballots. Number two, 34 states allow you to do it without an excuse, meaning you can just ask and you can get it. 16 states require an excuse. And every state has controls on who gets it, how they're counted, and how they're verified. What we need to worry about is, one, that states have the financial capacity to send out absentee ballots at the scale required during a pandemic. And when you think about the elections that have gone a little sideways or the utter collapse of democracy that we had here in Georgia, those were examples of not having the scale necessary. The second time the broken clock was right in that conversation is that we should not expect a perfect answer on election night. Americans just need to get out over that. Because we have such a fractured system of voting, instead of having a universal system where everyone does the same thing, we have 50 different states with 50 different ways of doing it. That means that some states are going to report more slowly because they're making sure they get it right. Other states are going to report faster because they've been doing it longer. And we do not need to expect news at 11 to tell us the future. What we need is for the news to tell us the truth. And that might take some time. Yeah, that's a really good point, because I think he's definitely teeing up. He, I mean, he's really telegraphing here what plan B is, right? It's the, the results come in slow. Mostly, Demo you know, the, the mail-ins are mostly Democrats. So it looks like he's ahead and then he's behind. The other thing I think he might be telegraphing here, by the way, is 20% fraudulent ballots. Like, is somewhere in the back of Donald Trump's mind, is he really freaked out he's going to lose by 20%? Is that what that means? From his lips to God's ears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a great point about, hey, it may take a couple of days, but don't buy any of the stuff he starts selling about that meaning anything. And the one piece I'd add is that the Republicans, have, they have planned to spend $20 million in litigation against the access to the right to vote. So a lot of the lawsuits are going to be bemoaning, they caused. If they let voters vote, if you're legally eligible to vote in America, you should get to vote. But voter suppression depends on this pretext that there is this notion of fraud. Fraud is irrelevant. It, you know, 1,300 possible cases out of 625 million ballots cast in the last 20 years. 1,300 cases, 625 million opportunities. 
fraud is not a problem, but they are going to use that and they're going to use their litigation to, to Jason's point to frighten us into thinking something nefarious is happening. And they're going to be the cause, which is their raison d'etre and their modus operandi. And I'm going to stop using my terrible Latin and just say, this is what they do to try to you know gaslight us all. Yeah, 1,300 cases. And I think, it, Stacey, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's only 100, 143 or something uh, convictions uh, of yes. those 1,300 cases. I, so, and I'm trying you know, to be really generous with the yeah, 1,300. Yeah. I, we're rounding up. <laughs> Yeah, there are probably more Trump associates who've been convicted of crimes over the past few years for political crimes than there were voter fraud. There, there may be more pardons. <laughs> we're laughing. We're really not. I'm crying. Oh, we're crying on the inside. Yeah. Crying on the inside. Let's talk about campaigns because you both uh, are really good at running campaigns and we have a lot of people in our audience, whether it's from the Let America Vote crowd or the arena crowd, et cetera, or just people who are interested in politics who are associated with campaigns in one form or another. And so we have this segment that we call unsolicited campaign advice, which is just our way each week of bringing to the table some advice for campaigns. It could be totally down ballot or all the way up to Joe Biden. Stacy, what do you have for us this week? So Jason actually sort of... Pre- oh, did I, did no, I no, steal no, your no. thunder no, no, no. You with one of my thunder. quotes of you? No, you didn't steal the thunder, You, but you set the table. One <laughs> of the ways we win elections is, or one of the ways we were taught to win elections is to pretend to be the person that our consultants think we should be. Uh, both Jason and I really, really annoy consultants because we're not good at that at all. And I would advise every candidate to be bad at pretense. Be the person you are. And part of that means that you're not going to be able to convince someone to change their ideology based on your fiction of this new value set that you discovered in the last six weeks. Be yourself. People are going to vote for you. Sometimes they may not agree with you, but they'll vote for you if they trust you. And the way you evince that trust is by not trying to change who they are, but trying to present who you are. And that's how I approach it. That's my whole, you know, I don't try to turn Catholics into Baptists. I just try to get Baptists to go to church by telling them what I'm going to preach about if I get elected. That, to me, is the most effective way of getting folks to be in my corner because I've tried to change people's minds. It's really hard. And most campaigns just don't have that kind of time. Most effective way to change people's minds is to like come at them with a genuine argument because they'll consider it. At this point, usually we give out some awards, but given the stature of our co-host, we didn't want to uh, bring you down with our juvenile antics towards the end of these these podcasts. Robbie, can I interrupt for a second though and acknowledge? <laughs> can I acknowledge all the people who tweeted at us this week to say that Lindsey Graham finally won his namesake award? And just say, look, we don't have the time to go over it this week, but yes, like we're we're gonna make up a plaque or something for him. We we acknowledge it. So instead of the awards, uh, what we're doing is uh, we're rolling out our mailbag. And so uh, as a reminder to our listeners, uh, if you have a question, uh, call our hotline and leave your question in the form of a voicemail. And just to remind you what that number is, it's 508-687-2589. That's 508-687-2589. And we'll both tweet out the number again just so everybody has it. And we're going to start this week with a question from uh, Natalia who's actually from my hometown of Staten Island. Hi, my name is Natalia, calling from Staten Island. Love the podcast. Um, I have a lot of Republican friends, as expected, in Staten Island. And I find that the ones who are more level-headed, who I can actually have a normal conversation with when I try to ask what they like about Trump or what would make them vote for Trump again, as most of them are considering doing, 
Um, their answer is usually the economy, and they point to unemployment numbers specifically. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little about what makes the economy good or bad, if it's just unemployment numbers or if there are other factors that we should consider and what has been happening since Trump was elected in 2016 up until, I guess, February of this year. I don't think it's really fair to discuss COVID or at least wouldn't really make an impact on my discussion with Republicans because they see that as, you know, some extreme issue that no one could expect to have been dealing with and any negative results on the economy are not Trump's fault. So appreciate anything you can do to discuss this topic. Thank you. So, Natalia, I would begin by saying that Trump created very little. He inherited a booming economy from Barack Obama, and he grew on top of it, which is what we want. You want an economy that continues to grow, and you want successive presidents to build on the benefits that they inherit. And given that Barack Obama didn't inherit anything good, what he left behind was fantastic. But to the point of using unemployment numbers, the problem with that is sometimes people have two or three of those jobs. And so it's not the employment level alone. It's looking at the wages that people are earning from those jobs. And it's also looking behind the numbers at who's simply given up. Uh, both Jason and I come from states where you had unemployment that was structured around the fact that you have permanently unemployable people. They don't have the skills and they don't have the job opportunities. And so it is, a, it is an important metric to use, but it cannot be the only metric. That's like deciding that you can bake a loaf of bread because you got flour. If you don't have yeast, if you don't have salt, if you don't have an oven, it's pretty much just a lump. And so we need to know that a really robust economy requires more than one input. Sometimes it's helpful to ask people, uh, do you think it's harder for you to be successful than it was for your parents? And, and then to redirect the conversation, not to current indicators, but to big structural change. Like, do you think the system's fair? Because you got two candidates. One of them says the system's fair and it works great. And, and the other, the challenger says, hey, the system could be more fair. I like that because it allows you to, even if they want to buy into all the indicators, you say, okay, well, maybe the economy was good. Um, but was it fair? Like, could we have actually done more with a good economy? So I think just go bigger. Yeah, what he said. Yeah. And just to add to this, and I have no doubt that uh, a sending somebody a, a, a economic paper from professors at Princeton is not going to do the trick here. But just <laughs> so you know, Natalia, uh, there was actually a, a paper from Alan Blinder and Mark Watson at uh, Princeton in 2013 that looked at Republican presidents versus Democratic presidents and GDP growth. And unquestionably, GDP growth, unemployment, all these figures are better under Democrats and Republicans. That being said, I don't think the president controls the economy in the short term like that. Like if I'm being fair, it's not that simple. But I'll just close out by saying the very premise of the questions that your friends are asking you is a little wrong in the sense that the COVID response is the biggest economic issue of our time. And that the president's utter failure to deal with it is wrecking our economy right now. And so I would be like, look, that's a world we don't live in anymore. It's like arguing about unicorns. Like we live in a world where COVID is the most important economic issue. And there, most people, even a lot of Trump supporters, they acknowledge that this president is fumbling this issue. Yeah, it's a great point. One other thing we wanted to mention is that uh, after we talked about reopening of schools last week, we got a few voicemails of people saying, hey, the teacher perspective would be really helpful on this. Teachers are feeling like we're being tossed under the proverbial school bus as a political sacrifice. So certain individuals can point to the opening of school as part of the economic success against COVID-19. 
So if our nation wants to open schools, then our nation should be willing to pony up and pay the funding that's needed to make sure every student is guaranteed a safe environment for them, for their family, and for the, us teachers. So that's the expectation is that teachers sacrifice their lives. And you know what? It's, a, it's also a job. And we're just, we're drawing the line. We have to draw the line at, I don't know, death. And we just wanted to acknowledge that and say that that is an incredibly important perspective. In many ways, it's the perspective. And we really should acknowledge the fact that as we debate reopening schools, we are talking about a safety issue and subjecting teachers all across the country to something that they didn't sign up for to risk their lives by being teachers. Uh, and so we wanted to acknowledge that and say that, you know, in the future, we are definitely going to try and incorporate more voices uh, of people who are on the ground in the middle of these subjects we're talking about. This brings us to another segment that we call Midlife Crisis Corner. And Stacy, I, I said this to Jason when I created this segment, but I'll say it to you too. This is not presuming anybody on this is in their midlife. It's a, a bit of a joke. What? session. Uh-huh. <laughs> you mean one of these things is much more like this than the other? Okay. Yeah, I, Stacey, I have no idea how old you are. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're so wise, I assume you are 6,000 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. years old. See, this so, is why he's brilliant, because that is absolutely... I'm just a, I'm a, I'm a tremendous kiss-ass, is what yeah. it is. So, uh, with that, uh, this is a segment where we share some tips about fitness, sleep, nutrition, sanity, etc. Jason, you want to kick us off? Yeah, uh, my advice for this week is a lesson I learned this week, which is don't be a hero. I have lower back issues, and they've been really good for a while, but I've also been trying to keep up with Ravi on the fitness side, and that's where don't be a hero comes in because yesterday I was like, oh, my back kind of hurts. No, I'm going to do legs today anyway, and then boom, like I got three exercises in, dropped everything, was like, well, not doing that for like a week. So I'm just sitting here in tremendous pain and taking a lot of ibuprofen, so don't be a hero. It's very on brand for the midlife crisis corner. Stacy, your turn. I have been working at working out. I have spent most of my life in jobs or in spaces where it just hasn't been convenient. And one thing that I've been trying to do is find those small ways to improve and increase. So in the morning now, I have to do planks, which I believe are the devil's tool. Uh, <laughs> I don't understand what someone was doing the morning. They decided, let me balance on my hands and toes. And see how long I can do that. But <laughs> I've been able to increase my time and I'm getting better at it. And so, you know, I will never be that person who does, you know, a plank for seven minutes or something. That just to me sounds like you don't have enough in your life. But <laughs> I am proud of myself for taking the small step of working on the planks, even though I had to start on, you know, forearms and knees. But, you know, even if you don't think this is something you do, if, you know, if you don't think you have enough time, it takes literally two minutes out of my day, one minute to pray and then a minute to actually try it. <laughs> That's great advice. <laughs> and Jason, we were we a couple of months ago we were exchanging these memes, but what was the world record for planks? It's something absurd. We were It's it's like eight hours and it's a it was oh my God. done by a sixty two year old former Marine. See why? I don't know if I could do anything for eight hours other than sleep, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, I struggle to do that. So. <laughs> exactly. Mine is uh, mine's also exercise related. I watched twenty four seven Kelly Slater, which is on HBO. Uh, you know Kelly Slater, like the world's best surfer. It was following him. I think he was at age forty seven or forty nine. It was like a couple years ago, where he was making a run at his final time to win like a surfing championship. And what I found really inspiring about it was that he's just old. Like his body's not working the way it needs to work or whatever. And I found it really inspiring to see somebody so successful and generally pretty fit 
trying to optimize the last possible athletic moments he has as a professional athlete. And it's a really good watch and uh, it's really inspiring. And uh, Ravi, I will tell you as a 46 year old, 47 is not old. <laughs> Whoa. I think I need to edit that out. Then. Uh, we'll no, we'll no, no, no. Go ahead. Own, own your mistake. Just own your mistake and move with it. No, no, no. See, Stacy, that guy's old. You're not. Um, I'm going to uh-huh. leave that in. Um, I'm going to leave that in, but it's uh, hopefully nobody makes it this far in this episode. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to make up for that mistake by uh, ending with a segment called Grab an Oar, where we ask our audience to take some action. And Stacey, as, as consolence for that, I'm going to kick it to you to talk about some important work you're doing to solve some of the problems we talked about today. Well, thank you very much. Uh, from my aged space in this chair, I will tell <laughs> you, number one, we need folks to complete the 2020 census. Uh, as much as it is critical that we vote this year, we have to remember that the census is the data input that decides the next decade of our lives. If you know of communities that didn't get the PPE they needed, if you know of families that are struggling to send their kids back to school because the classrooms are overcrowded. Those are all choices that were made based on 2010 census results. We fight about the vote. We have to fight about the census because the Republicans, namely Trump, they're trying to weaponize it. They're trying to use it to really erase the story of who we are as Americans. So please fill out the 2020 census. Go to my2020census.gov to sign up. And if you want more information about how you can help get the census done in your community, go to my organization, Fair Count. Dot org for more information. I'm going to plug Stacy's book again. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because uh, it's really good. So the book is Our Time Is Now. And the reason I think it fits in a grab an ore is because it, it really is a great guide uh, for real context and real life examples about these fights that we're having every day. And so that's why I think it's just really also on brand with Majority 54. It's not just here are the fights and here are the talking points. And it's also not just here's my experience with it. It's real stories that are really relatable and shareable of, uh, of real people, mostly in Georgia. Um, and so I think people will really be able to put it to good use. Thank you. You all are forgiven. <laughs> now I can sleep well. Now I can sleep well. I just want to uh, thank Stacy before I kick it back to Jason um, and Arena. It was a real privilege to, to be a small piece of that campaign. Uh, and you really inspired us. And we look forward to seeing uh, all the amazing change uh, that you're going to make in the years ahead. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'll thank Stacey too, because um, for lots of reasons, one of which is being the inaugural third co-host on here, and also for the fact that it was as simple as, I just texted Stacey and I was like, hey, I'm relaunching my podcast, I want you to be the first third co-host, and she's like, okay. So, I mean, that was pretty simple, and I really appreciate it. So, thank you, Stacey. You're so kind. Thanks for having me. And everybody else, remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Special thanks to Diana Kander. Jason, you are one of my favorite people in life. Ravi, I'm going to move you closer to that category when you learn not to call me old. There's two ways to look at it. Either I called you old or you just look so young that I didn't even think that I was offended. Ravi, stop doing it. Stop doing it. Oh, no, I guess it worked. I'm sorry I said anything. There you go. Yeah, yeah. We should definitely leave. Hi, listeners. It's Ravi with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas 
dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.